Chris and Will here, and you know, you guys, we have a challenge for you, and it's all about the red shirt. That's right. It's been a symbol of pride since 1991. In 2020, we're spreading the message of diversity, equality, and kindness with the red shirt challenge across the globe. On June 6th, join the world in wearing your red shirt and help us bring us all together hand in hand. Go to kindredpride.org to register. Join us June 6th with your red shirt. Show it off. Hashtag RSPD. It's the show that makes us talk. So why did the strawberry cry? Why? Because it was in a jam. <laughs> what about our life? With Chris and Will, season two. another great episode of what about our life with chris and will how are you hi yes it's it's feels like spring over here yeah but then it also feels like summertime <laughs> because it's really hot it's like and summer <laughs> i yeah, guess it's hot and it's muggy but you know today we welcome you to a wonderful episode because we have an awesome guest with us today yes we'll tell you about that later uh-huh. and Today, we are talking about the Amazing Grace song, Uh plus Wandering in Love Through Faith. Hmm, Very interesting topic, as it may. So let's go into that. First of all, let's talk about Chris and Will. Yeah. You know, let's talk about how we met. Okay. Okay. We met at Contemporary Resort, Walt Disney World in Florida. Yes. And we were both performing. Yes. And I was interacting with other people. Mm-hmm. He does what he does best and interrupts. Not necessarily. Yes. <laughs> and then I couldn't get him to stop interrupting ever since. Maybe it was just you were the one I needed to interrupt. But you know what? I don't you know. <laughs> the thing of it is, we didn't know any, we didn't even know we were in a relationship until probably about close to 20 years later. Because yeah. we always labeled it as friends. Yeah. Then it went from best friends to friends with benefits to uh-huh. finally, okay, whatever, we're roommates. Then it went from that to sure, okay, you can tile it. We're in a relationship. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it that that it goes through the stories of our ups and downs. Now, again, we're not going to go through that because that's, that's for, for the, the documentary. Document. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, what is love, by the way? Hmm. I think it's an emotional side of happiness. Wow. Okay. It is. When we were, ju- we've been talking a we, lot yes. about love and happiness, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because that's part of also staying well. Absolutely. We had an episode about that. Yeah. We did. We did. We just talked about that. So is it hard to fall in love? Depends on the perception. I think it depends on the situation. Yes, I agree. It doesn't have to be hard, but it can be. Uh Um, I think people mistake true love for first loves. Yeah. And I think people uh, mistake true love for over happiness sometimes because, you know, when we're lonely, 
and we're looking for a connection and the first person that gives us that connection, we automatically think we're in love. Yeah. And really that can be very true, but what makes it true love is how long it continues. Yeah. Because if you can keep your relationship fresh and almost as good as it was from the beginning, then that's really true love. Yes. And we've done that from the, from our past till now. Uh huh. I mean, we, we do have those magical moments, if you will, but we've also gone through our dreams together. One thing yeah. that we've done is we've created a balance and an adventure with one another that we've created those dreams for one another. Yeah. So with that, we were able to create that love yeah. in a sense, because our love for Chris and Will in some way or another was almost forced. Yeah. You know? Yep, it and and really I was. and I thought that here's me interrupting you, <laughs> but no, I thought love had to look and feel a certain way, and Chris has taught me that that's not the case. Love comes in many shapes and sizes and forms, and you know what? It's as Chris had said, you create your love. Absolutely. So how do we stay around each other 24-7? Because we practically do everything together. We annoy each other. We, no, no, just Before kidding. we started doing the show, we worked together. Yes. Uh, we worked for the same company together, uh -huh. pretty much the same hours together. I mean, it. everything was every second. So how do we do that? Well, when you've been in a relationship like ours, you take the independence from each other. Mm -hmm. We knew what each other liked, didn't like, and we connected it. Yeah. And then we found, found a balance. Yeah. Uh, did we get into fights and arguments and stuff like that? Absolutely. But I think how we ended it was we fell back into love. Yeah. Because we got whatever energy was inside of us out. Yeah. And then resurfaced what the energy that we really wanted. You no, know, you mentioned that. And I think that when I heard love will lead you back way before I even met you, Chris, I was attached to it. For what reason? At that time, I was very young. I didn't know. But being in our relationship as we are, it has a very solid point. Love will lead you back. Anything that happens, love will lead you back. And Well, we found our similarities. Yeah. And when we found our similarities, we managed them. Mm -hmm. And then when we managed them, that's how we were able to create new love in ourselves. Because then you remember, okay, why am I in love with this person in the first place? Absolutely. And, you know, and with our situation, that's what we had to do. Yeah. And, when we we would always use our our life as our book yeah we would always write our life as a book because in a sense our life had many chapters and oh, we yeah. had to do multiple things and by doing those multiple things we had to learn from it and progress with it we always had to find our progression we couldn't just sit back and stop and it was not easy for us to get out if we wanted to uh -huh. so i think when people look at relationships whether it's divorces or getting out of it you know, sometimes they forget how easy or hard it may be and what they have to do afterwards. They they miss those steps. Mm -hmm. And if you really need to get out of a relationship, then you really need to plan your steps with that. And if you can't and you automatically have to do it right then and there for whatever reason, then you immediately have to come to terms with you yes. and say, okay, this is what I am going to do to get through this. And you you have to find a path. And, you know, you talk about that because that's in a relationship with yourself. And so you're nurturing that and 
then when you go on your way, and if you do happen to meet somebody new, then you've nurtured your own relationship, which comes into love yourself and the world will love you in return. You know, absolutely. You have to learn how to trust. Yes. You have to learn. Respect is a big thing in this relationship. Oh, yes. And, you know, to me, it doesn't matter how many friends that he has or how many friends I have. And, you know, whether they flirt with each other or they don't, it don't bother me. I don't find jealousy. I find respect. Yeah. So if they're his friends can respect me, then I can respect them. I don't know. Care what they do, Mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the day. And that's really what holds us together is that respect. Yes. We respect each other. We know each other. We communicate with each other. We trust each other. And we we know what's best for one another. Uh And you know what? If he falls in love with someone else, then at the end of the day, I respect that to where we can still have a friendship afterwards and no harm done. Mm -hmm. That's how we've built that. We've had to find our balance. We built our balance Because in a true relationship, you have to find everything about that person. You have to find their soul and what matters to them. Uh Don't make them change. We didn't make each other change. Mm -hmm. He still does the same stuff before me, and I still do the same things before him. And, you know, the interesting part is at one time I thought, you know, yes, I'm going to have to give in this relationship because it's two people coming together for a one. But... At one time, I thought, well, if I give up what I usually do, then who am I? But really, he loves me because of those things that I do. And I love him because of the things that he does. Things that I normally wouldn't do, now I have an interest in them. I like them. And even some of them, I love them. And I'm pretty sure vice versa for you too, Chris. Absolutely. I mean, we we were independent. We were both independent in our own little way. Mm -hmm. And we connected that independence, not to become a one, but still have two different independent people, but found a connection just like putting a seatbelt over over your body when you get analogy. in the car. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's a protection. You know yeah, that there's a protection. Wow, wow. So it kind of fills that. Yeah. So that's the love with Chris and Will. Now let's go into faith a little bit. Okay. That's a big question. Faith mm-hmm. does not have to be completely, totally religious. Yes. It can be whatever you believe mm-hmm. is your director and your go-to entity or person or whatever the case may be, but that helps you get through the good and the bad. And in some situations, if people or certain individuals are, I guess the word is atheist, they still have some type of guiding stuff inside themselves that has them go through their own life. So, I mean, and you know, religious is not being religious and religion is not bad and it's not negative. We go to churches every now and again, but at the same time, we have our faith system that we believe in Yeah, that tells us and guides us to the path that we need to go down. It doesn't have and to have a label. It, we mm-hmm. Sometimes it's basically listening to your gut feeling yep. that says your gut feeling knows what's best for you. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that could be your fate. And, you know, fate can also be putting different uh, signs and directions in front of you that says, okay, Everything happens for a reason, but yes. guess what? Hello, I'm Faith. You don't need that reason. Mm-hmm. And Because so, if you had that reason, then you would want to try to change it and alter it. And then it's absolutely. not going to happen the way you want it. And a long string of things. So, And you know what? Faith is not about judgment and assumption. Exactly. If you spend your life judging and assuming things, whether you like what we do or you don't like what we do or what a person does or another person does, 
then you're judging and assuming, my friend, and you need to get out of it because that does not help you. Oh, that it, does not help yeah. you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and every, and the Bible even states that, believe it or not, I grew up with a religious family and I had to learn the Bible and I did. And I have very much respect for it. Absolutely. But some of the people out in this world that claim to be very religious and they, they go against it. And I'm like, then you're not religious. You're just an asshole. Wow. <laughs> That's just the way it yeah. is. I mean, you can't claim to be, you can't claim to be a religious person by showing up for church and then not practicing what the church is preaching or just I mean, you show up and then yeah. the next day it's gone you know, you know what, if you yeah. can't love a person for their whole self then you're not loving a person at all exactly and if you have can you have conditions on things then guess what that's a judgment and that's conditional love absolutely yeah. absolutely mm-hmm. which kind of goes into the song the amazing grace let me tell you a little bit of history about that song okay it was published in 1779 it was written in 1772. Hmm. The words are from personal experience, and it is an actual Christian hymn. It was written by John Newton. Oh, okay. That's right. And it was it it talks a little bit about establishing your fate, establishing you, and establishing anything that you can establish from your heart. It's a celebration of life. It's wow. a love for you. Wow. And it, 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 it doesn't have, it's people think it's religious and sometimes, sometimes it's not, it really is not. It's a very emotional presentation of a celebration of life. In my opinion. Yes, absolutely. It came from a man who did wrong and corrected and found ways through himself. Wow. Absolutely. And the Judy Collins version, of course, got, Inducted into the Library of Congress. 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 <laughs> Congress. Um, National Recording Registry. Yes. Big honor there. Very big honor. And Judy Collins is our amazing special guest today. Yes. We are so excited to uh-huh. be talking to her. Well, Judy Collins, she is an icon singer and songwriter Uh she in 1967 sang both sides now by joni mitchell oh yes she's also known for of course the amazing grace she has won grammy awards multiple lifetime awards of course and at the age of 13 she performed a mozart performance wow Doing Absolutely. a concerto at that age, that's impressive. Absolutely. And she's also appeared on Sesame Street and The Muppet Show. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> and she's also sang the amazing song, uh, Send in the Clowns from the Broadway show. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So it's very exciting. So we are excited. We are thrilled to be having her on the show. So sit back, relax. Judy Collins is coming up. We are honored to welcome the legendary Grammy Award-winning artist, Judy Collins. Hi there. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? You know what? We're very well. Thank you. Yes. Hi. How are you, Judy? (laughs) I'm fine. Hunkered down in New York City. Oh, okay. Yes, we're hunkered down in Orlando, so it's... Ah, Orlando. Nice and warm down there. It is. It is. It's been. It's been actually windy the last few days, yeah. which is good because I mean, when when you go outside for a little walk around the neighborhood, it's it feels good. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. 
So we yeah. Yeah, so we've seen pictures of New York and it's just nuts cuz I've never seen New York with no traffic before. I know. <laughs> true. <laughs> Thank you so much for being a part of our show. We really do appreciate this. Yes. My pleasure. It's such an honor. Yes. I mean, you are truly a legend, an icon. Um, you know, I I want to say you're the your your voice is the mother of music. It, it just <laughs> there's so much Thank emotion you. in your talent. You're so welcome. You're, there's so much emotion in your talent, and I have to I I, I will admit that uh, a lot of times when I listen to your music. I find myself almost tearing up, if not tearing up, because it's just, it speaks to your soul from the inside. So mm-hmm. we definitely appreciate all the art that you give to the world. Well, you're an angel to say so. I'm very lucky, very, very lucky to have the kind of career that I've had over 60 years now. Over 60 years? I can't believe wow. it. And to do all the things I've been able to do to sing with my own music and with other people, it's just a privilege to be able to make music. Today we lost one of our major fans and supporters and a per- person who who made it possible for a lot of us to make a living in this doing what we love in this uh, uh-huh. crazy world. Gene Shea was a friend of mine, and he was oh, wow. uh, really, I think, instrumental in bringing folk music and whatever it is I do to the fore for so many people. It feels to you when you, you have people that are so close to you that, that move on and that really have made a true impact to your life and you know in a lot of ways you we get that from your music as well and we get that from all of the people that helped build your music and contribute to that music so you know my heart is with you on that Mm -hmm. well i have i must say that you are so right it's the support team that allowed all of this to happen it's people who help us people who are creative and interested, people like you who bring us out to the to the public. I was 19 when I got my first paying job, $100 a week. Wow. <laughs> In 1959, that was a fortune. Right, wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, uh, you know, five shows a week. Um, I think maybe it was, could have been, could have been six. I'm not sure, but it was uh, three shows a night, and it was Colorado, and I started out um, just making public what I'd been doing for a while. I started, I found folk music as a teenager at at uh, about 15, uh-huh. and nothing could stop me, not, nothing could slow me down. I was trained as a classical pianist, and I was raised on the Great American Songbook, but the minute I heard the Gypsy Rover and both and uh, Barbara Allen, I was off to the races. So oh, wow. I was lucky because the time was right. You know, sometimes you realize that the time is right and something happens and it's all synchronistic. But the radio stations, the newspapers, the record label, the audiences, I mean, they helped to, and my team, my my right. recording company, all the all the wonderful artists that, that played on my records, um, 
I, I can never thank them enough. Well, we appreciate um, the kind words. And yes. for us personally, the whole thing about this show is we love to keep people informed about even artists from, you know, back in your day and even at back in our day. Uh-huh. And I think sometimes the art itself, whether it's general Hollywood or, or music or even artistic paintings, they get lost in the in the mix of today's world. So we we love to go back and represent it, refresh and, it, yeah, and and bring Good. people back to back to you because yes. you know we never want your your talent to be lost, and it mm-hmm. never has. And that's that's the pleasure that we have in keeping it alive. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. You're, you're very wel- welcome. Yes, you're welcome. So you've had such an amazing career. I mean. I, it's breathtaking. I mean, really is. What gave you the interest in wanting to start into singing? Because I know you came from a uh, musical family, but what what really sparked your interest to say, you know what, this is my calling? I was musical. I was in the family of music. My dad made his living in the radio business and was a great singer and a wonderful performer. Not a bad songwriter either. And so he made a very good living for 30 years in the radio, raised five of us kids, and uh, was was really inspiring to me. I was the oldest of five, and it became clear by the time I was two or three years old that I was going to be doing this thing, you know, playing right. the piano, singing, learning songs, taking lessons, practicing, playing in the school shows, playing on his radio, <laughs> playing in... <laughs> in uh, well, I was trained as a classical pianist. I was playing with an orchestra by the time I was 13. Wow. Playing the most piano concerto with my teacher's orchestra. Anyway, it was all sort of there in my, in my daily life, practicing a couple hours a day and always having to be involved in music, singing, having my own group. Well, there were wow. three of us and and we sang all over Denver at all the clubs and all for all the the Lions Club and the and the the the, the Kiwanis Club and the Elks Club, and right? Fitzsimmons General Hospital and so on. And then I picked up a guitar at fifteen because I heard the Gypsy Rover and uh, Barbara Allen, and I just said, "That's it." Um, that's, this is what I'm going to do. I love the stories. That's what I love. I fell in love with the stories. And it wasn't until later that I found Pete Seeger and, and Woody Guthrie and, of course, his son Arlo. I'm going out with Arlo next in the summer. Well, whenever we get right, back right, into our right. routine, Arlo and I have a few dozen shows lined up for the end of this year and the coming year. So... We met when he was 13, and he opened for me at Gertie's Folk City in New York in 1961. So we've known each other a long time. Wow. But it was, and every place I turned, there was a job, there was a place to go, there was more music, right. there were more songs to learn. So I I was a very quick study, I guess, because I'd been trained as a kid. Mm-hmm. So I knew right. I knew what it I knew what it took. I watched my father. I knew what it took. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and if you have that example to follow, a good example, then you're just going to go and pop right into it, you know? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's Absolutely. let's go into that story a little bit because you did mention it, and we were going to ask this. So tell me what drove you to want to do the powerful piece by Mozart yes. at thirteen. That is a huge piece to perform, mm-hmm. and I, I just curious what what gave you the drive to say, okay, this is what I got to do on the piano. Well, I had. I had moved to Denver when I was nine, and uh, my father immediately, I had been already studying for five years Uh in Los Angeles with a great teacher, and um, so I was on my way, and he needed to get me a teacher, and we found somebody who wasn't so hot, and then he found me Dr. Brico. Dr. Brico, my teacher, was a renowned conductor. She was the first woman to conduct the Berlin Philharmonic, the New York Philharmonic, um, orchestras. The Sibelius always had her conduct his orchestra. She was wow. a total pioneer. And she, you know, it's funny because Renee Fleming and I have talked about this. Renee did not know that there was a woman conducting in nineteen in the thirties. Wow. She she had a ferociously good good uh, uh, already uh, career, but she was told. That if she came to Denver, they would give her the post as the conductor of the Denver Symphony, which uh-huh. was going public. And then she got there with her pianos and all of her statues of Mozart and Debussy and Bach and Beethoven. And then they said, oops, we can't hire you. You're a woman. <laughs> wow. And uh, the job of the conductor is not only to conduct the symphony, but to raise money. So, mm-hmm. And that's always been part of the big problem you know and she had her own orchestra in new york in the in during the war eleanor roosevelt was on her board of directors she had her own orchestra at carnegie hall and town hall she was phenomenal so when i got she got a hold of me when i was 10 Uh and she put me under her wing and uh when she realized what she had on her hands, which was somebody who was ferociously determined, right. most of all, uh, and loved what I did. I mean, and I'll tell you a funny story about this, but she said uh-huh. to me when I was 11, she said, okay, you're going to memorize this concerto, and she put it in front of me and sent me home with it. <laughs> And she said, you're going to start memorizing it right this minute. Well, I said, well, I can't do that. I'm going on a trip to Seattle with my family. This was in Denver in 1951. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And uh, she said, oh, that's not a problem. She said, handing me a cardboard keyboard. Oh. And <laughs> I did. I spread it out on the back seat of the car, the Buick big, beautiful traveling Buick and over the knees of myself and two of my brothers. And I started memorizing the Mozart Piano Concerto because out we were taught from the beginning. I never heard the concerto. Uh-huh. Well, actually, that's not true. We went to that summer when I got, after I memorized it, uh-huh. we we went to, um, anyway, we were taught to memorize by analysis, quotes, unquotes. I went, my parents and I drove to Aspen from Denver to listen to a duo, piano duo called Vronsky and Babin to play this uh-huh. concerto. I have, I have the music in my studio here signed by Vronsky and Babin. Oh, wow. And so 
I was ready. You know, in two years, I had that sucker down. I was playing it with another young pianist, um, 16-year-old named Danny Guerrero, and we were a sensation. So, <laughs> Wow. Um, that's how it all started. And, of course, I continued. And then in the coming years after after 1953, I continued to study play, and the next concerto that I was going to do was the Rachmaninoff Second Piano Concerto, and I was learning that. Oh. Uh, all along, all the while, I was performing on my father's radio show, going on the school shows, singing on various, you know, going to fundraisers with him, uh, fundraisers for the Goodwill, fundraisers for the Salk mm-hmm. vaccine, mm-hmm. Um, which didn't happen until 53. You know, this I had polio myself at 10, 11, 9, uh-huh. just before I started studying with Brico. Uh, so I was practicing the Rachmaninoff one day. I was 15, and I don't know where my family was, but they were somewhere. And I turned on the radio, and that's when I heard the Gypsy Rover. Oh, wow. And it just, it totally... It was some some DJ in Denver who used to play everything. He'd play some Bach, and then he'd play some Woody Guthrie, and then he'd play... And then the next week, he played Barbara Allen, sung by Joe Stafford. So I was completely hooked, and I had to call Dr. Rico and tell her I was going to learn. I wasn't going to play anymore. We had a very teary ending, and she used to come and see me. Wow. We remained friends all that those years, and... Mm -hmm. She would come to see me, and she'd come backstage and take my hands in hers, and she'd say, "Oh, little Judy, you really could have gone places." Uh-huh. <laughs> wow. And of course, as you know, or maybe you don't, I made a film about her life called yes. Antonia, the Portrait of the Woman, and yes. it was nominated for an Academy Award. So I was able to take her to Hollywood in nineteen. 19- 75 and she pranced around and met Robert Redford and had a great time but I still don't think she ever really forgave me for uh, not playing the rock off with her orchestra wow oh. wow well so, let's, let's go into some of your songs because you again you've collaborated with some some amazing people but the one that I love there's several that I actually love but uh, this one of course is one of your top. It is Both Sides Now, the Joni Mitchell song. Tell me about that. What was it like to bring out Joni Mitchell's talent? I was, it was 1967. I had no idea who she was. I I had heard her name from Tom Rush, who fell in love with uh, Circle Game. Uh-huh. So he used to talk about that. I might have heard it once. I'm not sure. But she was an unknown young girl, like there were a lot of young girls wandering around the village looking for a shot uh-huh. at the big time. <laughs> and uh, she, uh, she was, uh, I got, I was, it was 1967 and I was sound asleep, probably passed out because that, I drank for a long time. Uh-huh. And uh, at three, three o'clock in the morning, my phone rang and it was my old friend Al Cooper Al Cooper started Blood, Sweat, and Tears, as you know. Right. And also the Blues Project, and has been a great pal of mine. I hung out with him in the 60s and used to go to the 
club and listened. I just loved the group. Uh-huh. And um, he called me on the phone at 3 in the morning, and I thought, oh, this is strange. I woke <laughs> up. This is weird. <laughs> and I said, well, how can I help you? And he said, I just, I have a surprise for you. And then he put Joni Mitchell on the phone, uh-huh. and she sang me both sides now. Wow. And he knew that I was in the midst of, I was always making another album, but he knew that I was in the midst of my making my seventh. I had already made the album on which I had discovered, and, well, actually he discovered me, Leonard Cohen, and I had sung his songs, and this it, that was the sixth album, and it was quite a dramatic change for me. It was orchestrated a lot of, it had some terrible reviews, but in the long run, it was a great album called In My Life. Right. But I knew, I knew that, I knew that Al was, he understood that what I did was to find writers and then sing them and make them famous. And so he was interested both in the fact that he, he and I were friend, friendly enough that he knew my by heart, but he also wanted to help Joni. And I think he, I think it was a double whammy when he had her sing me this song, uh, this song, because he knew that I was going to love this song. It's a great song. Right. Yeah. It is. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Now, do you and uh, Joni still keep in touch at all? Not really. I mean, I'll, I'll send her a note now and then or some flowers or a congratulations. She's had a hard time with her aneurysm, which I think is now, I think she's coming back and doing some writing and singing. And it's looking very good. And uh, but of course we've been. I've recorded a number for songs. The most recent was a river, which I put on my most recent album. It's interesting. It's called Winter Stories. This album. I've heard yes, it. And, yes. <laughs> and it has a lot of things on it that are quite special. And it was also on the charts, on the Billboard charts, number one. Uh huh. And they called me up and they said, "You have a lifetime number one. You've never been number one on the Billboard charts before." And so, congratulations. Now, I just picked up the something from uh, Facebook the other day that told me that uh, Bob Dylan is the number one for the first time wow. with his new song, you know, F- uh, Murder Most Foul, the song about uh, the assassination. Wow. And it's funny that he's, he's of an age and I'm of an age, but we're finally both making the number one spots on the Billboard charts. That's Fascinating. Good. It is yeah, fascinating. And, yeah. you know, I have, you, you know, uh, there's only your version and another version of the river I've heard. And the other version that I've heard, it it was sung by Adina Menzel. And I've heard your version. And I, again, your version speaks to you. So, I mean, Adina is talented. No, you know, no question there. She is a talented, powerful voice. But yours, your version just, again, captivated your brand and just mm-hmm. spoke to you so deeply. So I immediately fell in love with your version of The River so much more because, again, every time we hear your music, it, it's, yeah. the emotions just start grabbing at you. But And with the emotions, too, it's, well, for me, it's like almost two ways because it's like... It's so emotional, so powerful. 
But at the same time, it's so soothing and calming it's and a, still. And yeah, it's a, it's such a warmth. And I, yeah. I, I think that's why I, I consider you the mother of music because you know these are <laughs> these are the these are the moments that you you want to have with with your mother. And when your mother starts singing you those lullabies when you're young and uh-huh. tells you these stories, your music just gives you that gives you that connection yes. and says. Wow, I really forgot about what it felt like when my mother did that to me growing up. And here I get to reinvent that with your music. It's like it speaks to you like Mm -hmm. that. It really does. That is so sweet to hear. I love it. I love it. My mother used to sing to me. My mother was a very talented musician, actually. She was studying the piano. But when she met my father, she gave that all up. But she used to sing to me. And she used to sing... uh, Hi, the dear little dolly. She has eyes of bright blue. She can open and close them, and she smiles at me too. In the morning, I rock her, and she goes off to sleep, something or other. But I like best to rock her at the end of the day, something like that. I remember her singing me that song. Yeah, it's... I don't know where it comes from. I have a feeling that it's growing up in that environment where I was always hearing this wonderful voice that my father had. Mm-hmm. And these are times when people sang a different way. Yes. They yeah. sang in a way that was um, mostly involved with the melody and, and the lyrics. Yes. The lyrics right. were vitally important. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the clarity of the lyrics was vitally important. I think that's part of it. But anyway, I want to thank you for saying that. I'm thrilled. I never, I had, I always had River on my list that I would do when I did my Joni, Joni Mitchell album, which I will do sometime in the next couple of years, probably. Uh-huh. And uh, when we were putting this River, River uh, Winter songs together, my manager said, well, you have to sing Joni's song. I mean, it's about, uh, well, it's partly about winter. Right. And so that's how I came. And when, the minute I started to sing it, we were recording with Chatham County Line down in Raleigh, North Carolina. We had a rehearsal. And the first time we did all the songs, which included things like Northwest Passage and The Blizzard and um, The Fallaway and my song, Mountain Girl and some of their new songs, uh-huh. and also I did uh, the Highwaymen on it. But I they started to play River, and I said, "Oh, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> yep." Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It, it's it, it's <laughs> it's a true song. I mean, and, and it's different in a sense because when we started first hearing it, it was like, "Okay, this is a different type yes. of holiday song," or or however you want to look at it. It's it's different, but again, it it matched, and it was so it, it was it was really good to hear. Mm-hmm. And like I said, you know, Adina, she really gives it she gives it its pitch, and she does a great version of it. But I think that uh, your version again brings the emotion, and and that's really what winter is. It gives you a calm, and you uh-huh. present that. Yeah, with that song. yes, it yeah. does. It really that's does. True. So let's go into another one of your biggest hits. Now, this one 
how this one was done again i can't say i'm gonna repeat it every <laughs> through this whole interview is the emotion side of it you did this one such a way that you wouldn't even think it came from a uh, theatrical performance and that is send in the clowns what oh. inspired you to give it that level of emotion in it well i you know i my job is to turn the song into a Judy Collins song. Right. That's what I'm supposed to do, and that's what I do. That's what I... I don't have to work at it. It doesn't take any analysis or anything else. It just means you actually sing what's written. You sing what's there. You sing the lyrics. Right, right. And you sing it in a clear voice, and everybody understands the lyrics, and it turns out that that's what was required. Uh, but... I I knew that from my father. Right. Right, right. He did that. He would, People loved him. He was a great singer. But it, it was a totally understandable approach. That's what was different. Do you So when you re-record these songs and then you you see them you hear them out into the world and you see you see and hear the responses for it does it does it kind of surprise you in a sense on how the general public receives it kind of like with with us i yes. mean when we tell you how we perceived your music and how we perceive your talent does it surprise you or does it give you that sense of comfort that says you know what i accomplished this that's what i wanted to do pat myself on the back and good job you know well I want to be able to, to, to always do it, and that's why I have to... I'm the instrument, so right. I have to take care of my health in every way that I can. I have to eat well, I have to exercise, I have to live like an athlete on the road, and, uh -huh. you know, I do 120 shows a year normally. Wow. I mean, this, for me, being locked down in New York, I haven't been home this long in, since I was about 16. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you on that uh, one. Likewise, on ourselves, yes. we're we're we don't know what to do with ourselves neither. So I I feel you on that. <laughs> <laughs> so I practice every day. I'm just um, you know I have to sing, I have to play the guitar, I have to play the piano. Yes, and mm -hmm. keep working on these songs that I always am trying to write, and also new songs will come along that I feel compelled to write to sing. I when I first met Leonard. When he walked in my door in 1966, he and I were introduced by a mutual friend, and she said to me, well, he wants to come and sing you his new songs. Nobody else has heard them. And she said, frankly, I can't think of anybody else that, that would want to hear them because everybody else writes their own songs, whether it's right. Bob Dylan or Eric Anderson or whoever is out there. They all write their own songs. They don't want to hear his. But she said, you pick other people's songs. That's how you're making your way. And I said, yes, well, let's hear it. So he came to the apartment. And uh, it was funny because he was funny and very handsome. And I said to myself as I answered the door, I don't, I don't care if he doesn't write songs. But nonetheless, I said, we'll think of something. But he does, of course, write songs. And he sat down eventually and sang me three songs. He sang me a song called Dress Rehearsal Rag, uh -huh. which is about the rehearsal for a suicide. And then he sang me Suzanne. Uh -huh. And then he sang me the Stranger song. And of the three, I recorded the first two right away. 
Right. And as he is famously quoted as having said, made him famous. And he, in turn, told me I had to write my own songs, or he asked me why I wasn't really. And I told him he had to sing his own songs and pushed him on stage and made him do just that. But he, I never recorded the Stranger song. But I always said to myself, I think I have to record that. So anyway, that's one of the things I'm practicing right now. I might practice Anthem. I, I have a number of his songs that I've recorded that I love. Of course, Blue Raincoat and Sisters of Mercy and uh-huh. Abraham Isaac and Bird on the Wire and uh, what else? Um, Priests is another of his great songs. Anyway, I'm practicing the Stranger song and it is a very, I would never do Hallelujah. Everybody's done Hallelujah. I wouldn't right. want to even go near it. Um, so, but I always thought all these years ago, you know, it was 50, it was 50, 55 years ago that I guess, 56 years ago that we met, and I always knew that I would sing it at some point, so now I'm learning it and playing it, and, uh, you know, I have to do that, I have to keep, uh, I have to keep, keep things uh, going. Yes, right. of course. Right. Yeah. Well, kind of speaking a little bit of some of the different songs that you've done, it kind of brings me to this question. Do you think that um, music is the platform to life, good and or bad? Well, I tell you, I think that that people need music. They need great stories. They need music. They need live music. And yes. so being able to have live music in our lives... I mean, that's one of the reasons since the record labels have gone, the record business has sort of gone in the old way that we knew it. And, uh, you know, the ra- the radio route is still, is not anymore the route to get to your audiences. It's something else. It's a combination of iTunes and and um, Facebook and right. getting on the uh, various radio shows like yours. So it's different, but... Live music is keeping people, I think, mentally in shape. I think we need music and art, but particularly music, to stay on the planet. It helps our memories. It helps us in every way because Uh it connects us to the present but also to our past. I always think, there I am. I'm standing on the stage. I'm singing, and I'm going through. my. And everybody's out there. It's quiet. It's dark. They're all, they can't use their phones, they can't chit-chat with each other, they're listening. Yes. Right. And while they're listening, they're going through all their memories in their mind. Uh-huh. They're on a journey that will be um, unrepeatable for any of them. And also, I mean, it may come and go with certain memories, but it's a unique experience for them, as it is for me. Right. And having access to your dream state and your imaginative state through music is one of the things that I think has kept me playing and singing and studying all my life, you know, because it aids my mental health. If I don't do this every day, I'm in lockdown here, avoiding the the virus, trying to be creative and, and make contact with my friends. If I don't practice and have music in my life, I would go nuts. Yeah. Very true. I mean, there's mm-hmm. no question about it. Yeah. Very and so true. I realized that live music 
is my gift to myself first. But then everybody that I sing to, that's a gift for them too. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And just music in general, you know, especially live music that you were talking about, like not not only does it um, bring back or, you know, bring back memories, but it also like stimulates stuff too. So like you were saying, like it stimulates your mind. It stimulates, you know, being active. It makes you, I guess, in some way want to be happy too, you know? Yeah. I mean, so... I guess my question is, do you believe music heals? Oh, sure. Absolutely. It does indeed. You know, you hear a lot of things about people who reach a stage where they can't remember, they can't talk, they can't... And, and well, my friend Eric Weisberg, who was the great banjo player, people know him from the movie Deliverance, but he was a great, great, great player and a very good friend, and I traveled with him all over the world, in fact, he and I went to the Soviet Union in 1965 together uh-huh. um, when it was still the Soviet Union. Anyway, he was a brilliant player. And at the end of his life, he and uh, he developed uh, dementia and basically could not speak or react in any way. So a bunch of his friends went up there to where he lived, lived in uh, Woodstock. And they brought their instruments and they sat around and sang and... He picked up his guitar and began to sing those songs. Wow. So, um, you know, you cannot, that's proof in the pudding, as they say. Mm -hmm. So it stimulates the mind in a way that is reaching the depths of memory and the depths of language. Yes. And this is how we communicate to each other. Whales use the songs that they sing, I learned years ago. So that they can tell each other stories and they can communicate information, which to us would be ununderstandable, but a whale has its own internal mental process by which he understands what's being said in the song. Sort of like going to that, I don't, um, it's sort of like that quote that music is the universal language. Um, it is absolutely because I mean yes, it's there's it just so many things you know instruments voices and you put that all together or or you know separately it all communicates something and it's amazing. It's my route to my own mental health and to other people's mental health. I think it's it's sincerely it's like the Silken Road. You know, it's the Silk Road rather. It's it takes you to places you never thought you'd get. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, and that's a good point. And, it's, and I, we bring this into this to one of the final songs that I want to bring up to you. Um, I had taken your version of this song and listened to it because I am a writer. I write uh, screenplays for movies and television as well. And I wrote this project, and it is in very much development right yes. now. And this script, this movie script is almost about my life and not completely, but almost about majority of it. And it's been seen by so many different uh, people, top stars, and it is, it's picked up. And the one question that they go, they go, 
how did you write this? Mm-hmm. And I go, well, first of all, I wrote it in four days. And they go, now, how did you write it in four days? And I go, well, there was one particular song that I listened to the entire time. Yes. And I took the emotions out of that song that was in within me. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it down. And that's how I built this script. And that's how I built the story. And I'm talking wow. about your version of Amazing Grace. So, yes. So I have to, every time I tell that story and every time anybody asks me that question, whether it's a studio exec or it's um, an actor or whatever, and they, I always say it's Judy Collins, Amazing Grace. That's the song that pulled that story out of me. And Oh, that's so great. I mean, when he was writing this script, he was in the zone, and he would have this song on repeat. Oh, it yes. was, I mean, it, constantly, constantly. But the most amazing thing about it is you never got tired of it. You no, know, it's it just, it just, it just, I don't know. I'm speechless at the moment. Yeah. It just, it's that feeling that it keeps going. It's fueling something. And it oh, really so is wonderful. amazing. It is. <laughs> and you know, the the story, I'll give you a little bit of background. It's basically the story is about the love between a mother and her son. And I know that, um, you know, it. You, you speak of that in so many different ways. And I, I'm telling you, it that song it just drew out it it drew out the true meaning of connection and love and Mm -hmm. the emotions that's such a good thing to hear i'm so glad yes that's wonderful yes and so so tell me about tell me your actual feelings about amazing grace what i mean it's gosh your version's been recognized with the, the library of congress and it's gotten a lot of publicity off of that and so how does that version make you feel well, this was this was a journey of discovery because I I knew the song from a, being a child. My grandmother used to sing it to me, and I was um, it was 1969, and I was in an encounter group. I was always trying to figure out what's wrong with me, uh-huh. and uh, I was in this encounter group, and things got a little hot. And my producer was in that group, and he said to me, "I think you ought to sing something." to calm everybody down, because there's going to be physical damage if you don't. So I sang that song, and everybody calmed down. And the next day, he called me and said, we have to record that song. So first they tried to put instruments on it, and I said, no, no. So we went up to St. Paul's Chapel on the campus at the University of, uh, at uh, Columbia University here in New York. Uh And I just gathered a bunch of friends, and we sang it a cappella. There were a couple of ringers in there that could sing, but it was just a group of friends, mainly. And it it took off like a shot. Uh, the other day, during this COVID lockdown in England, somebody opened their windows and played it loud outside the um, Coventry Hospital in London, and it went... There were two million hits on on uh, Facebook because people... All, they all know that version because it became a hit over there first in 1969. Wow. And I did not know, when I recorded it, I didn't know anything about John Newton. So then I slowly, I got a letter with a book, with a manuscript. I got a letter from a fellow named Steve Turner in England. And I didn't know who he was. And 
he sent me this manuscript and he said, I think you have to write the introduction to this book. And I thought, I wonder why. And he said, because you dug this song, Amazing Grace, out of the shadows because it was beginning to disappear, he said. People had, it had fallen out of favor. Now it was coming out of the hymn books. People weren't recording it. People weren't singing it. And then he told me the story. The book was a story about John Newton's life, and John Newton was a slave trader, uh-huh. captain of a slave ship in England, and he had a ship. Ship. He was a very bad guy, you know. Right. And he had a shipwreck on the coast of Derry in Northern Ireland, and he survived. And when he survived, he had this spiritual awakening and sat down and wrote Amazing Grace. Wow. And the rest of his life, he wrote hymns with a guy named uh, Cowper, and they lived and wrote together in a place called Olney. Uh-huh. And a fellow named Wilberforce, who was in the Parliament at that point, was trying to pass a law. It took him 20 years to pass a law in England against the slave trade. And he would go up to Olney and talk to uh, John Newton, who would say to him, just keep trying, keep trying, keep trying. And finally, he passed the bill. But John Newton was a genius. He was an enlightened, somehow, he was given this this song. Who knows? It probably had some shifts and changes in the music, but basically the words were his, probably his creation, and he probably used a melody that Either he made up or came to him in some dream or something. Right. But the story is very, and I always knew, before I knew the story of John Newton, I knew that the song had a power in itself. I had no idea why. Right. There are a lot of songs in the world, you know, and some of them are very nice, and some of them have a lot of lasting interest, but very few, maybe a handful, have any kind of true power that right. transcends cultures and transcends generations. And this one does. You know, it's like a great hymn was my experience. And, of course, I have the experience every time I sing it of seeing what it does to people. I mean, it it sort of lights them up. You know, they, yes. Yes, they're it does. wild. <laughs> they become very almost illuminated out there in the audience. <laughs> yes, yes, it does. Well, I, I, I told the studio, I go, whatever it takes for you to get Judy Collins' song in this film when you finally decide to, to make it, I go, do it, because that's that needs to that, that version needs yes. to play tribute to you because you in my mind created those words on that that paper that I wrote and I'm like you have to put it in there it has to go in there and it has to go at the end of the film because it has to pay tribute to Judy Collins Good. so Good. but um Good. so oh, I'm so glad it was helpful that's fantastic Yes. Oh, you you just don't know. <laughs> I am. The responses of this project has just I've I've never in my lifetime ever imagined that I would be in a debate to where I have to choose who's going to play the mother in uh-huh. this film. I've had <laughs> I've had more actresses <laughs> yep. come up to me, you know, big name actresses and say I want the mother. I want the mother and I'm like Oh, you would be so great at that, and and then the next one comes in. I'm like, okay, this is difficult, you know. I well, I, probably I'm too old to play it, but I certainly would 
if I were younger. <laughs> you know what? You know yeah. what? You're not. There are a lot of characters in that in that film that uh, was written that are so many different ages. Because again, yes. it revolves kind of around my life. So around my life was always grandparents. It was always my my mother, and it was always different different types of people that contribute that helped me get through my phase of life that I was going yeah. through. Yeah. So you never know. You never know. You I, never know. You yeah, never know. I know. <laughs> well, Judy, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been an absolute delight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I do you guys ever tour down to Florida at all? Oh, sure. I do a lot of Florida dates. I've been, we were in Florida, the I guess after we went to London, we came back. No, then we went to Norway. Then we came back and did a whole stretch of shows in Florida in uh, the second half of February. Oh, oh. nice. Well, I'm it, down there at least once a year, and oh. sometimes more than that. Well, perfect. You know, um, we are going to find a time to go and see your show. That's yes. on my bucket list Good. is to go see you perform. Good. And when we do, I'm, I'm going to reach out to you and say, hey, look, you know, we want to give you the biggest hug if we can yes. and, or give you a, a fist bump, whatever it is during that time period. <laughs> you know, because that sounds great. Please come and see me. I We will. Yes. We will. Well, Judy, thank you again so much for coming on our show. It has been a delight. Mm-hmm. It's a moment we will remember and treasure forever. Yes. I guarantee thank you. you. Thank you so much for having me as your guest. I loved every minute. Well, thank and God you. bless and stay safe. Absolutely, what a legend. Wow. I loved it when she started singing. Yeah. That lullaby was so comforting. You just kind of just, even though you just kind of in your own moment there, because, I mean, what an amazing talent. Absolutely. And to talk about the history of The Amazing Grace and some of the greatest songs that she's done and, and just talk about her career overall. She, to me, truly is the mother of music. Uh-huh. I really believe that. She has the voice to be the mother, mother of music, and uh-huh. absolutely love that. What a way she came into it. I absolutely. Mean, wow. Absolutely. Well, we want to thank the amazing Judy Collins for yes. joining us today. And we also want to thank you guys for joining us today mm-hmm. and taking part of this amazing treat. Yeah. It was one of a kind, very historic and memorable for us. So oh, of course. We do appreciate that. Be sure to check us out online at our website. ChrisandWill.com. As well as following us on Instagram. At Chris.Ann.Will. That's right. You can get all the great information about Chris and Will and what's to come. And you can also hear some of our past episodes as well. Uh-huh. So go and tell your friends about us. Let everybody know who we are. We'd love to entertain. Mm-hmm. We love to bring you more guests because we have a lot more guests coming. So be sure to join us next week for another great episode of What About Our Life with Chris and Will. Mm-hmm. Another great topic. Another great guest, you guys. Yay. Fulfillment. But for now, we've got to wrap it up. We want to thank Judy. We want to thank you guys. And we want to remind you guys that we love you and to remember to love yourself and the world will love you in return. But for now, we gotta go. Bye. Bye.